Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are different points in our lives, different times of a given year that we are often asked to step back and reflect. We can think of anniversaries, significant anniversaries in our marriages, birthdays, different milestones in our life, maybe the beginning of a new year. Or maybe there's instances in our life where we're stopped in our tracks. Maybe it's an accident, a loss of a loved one. And the Lord calls us to stop and to reflect, to ask ourselves questions, tough questions, heart-searching questions, to see where our hearts are, where our lives are at in relationship to him and to his word. One of these questions that we ought to be asking ourselves from time to time regularly is the question of who do you worship? Who do you worship? Or maybe what do you worship? What influences you to the point that it impacts the way you live, the way you think, the way you go about your, your daily life. Such to the point that it causes you to worship, to bow down. You let it guide every aspect of your life. We live in a world where many people worship different things. And it doesn't take long as we look around in our society, in the world as a whole, we look around and and see what these things are. We see it reflected in lifestyle choices that people make. We see it reflected in the political spectrum of ideas and ideologies that people will hold on tightly to and promote at all costs. We see it reflected in the different religious affiliations that people will associate themselves with. We see it reflected in the, in the things that people entertain themselves with, day by day, week by week. And the question is, for you and I, where do we fit in this? Who do you worship or what do you worship? We want to ask ourselves this tough question, not just looking out at the world around us, but we want to look in our own hearts and our own lives. What impacts the way you think? What, what guides your thinking? Is it political ideologies? Is it your work, your career? Is it people or a person in your life? Is it your entertainment, what you live for every day? Friend, what do you worship? Who do you worship? This is an ultimate question. It's a question that we will need to answer, and the answer we give will impact and have an impact on our final outcome, our final destination. If we are worshipping the things of this world, if we are worshipping our own lusts, our own desires, 
And that's what we, our life revolves around. There will be a day when we will be forced to bow the knee before the King of Kings and confess, but unfortunately too late, that he is king. Or are you already worshiping him? Is he your king? And do you look forward to that day where you will worship him in glory forever and and ever? This is a question that you and I need to answer today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our, our lives. The psalmist in Psalm 99 makes the incredibly strong case, the only case, that there is only one that you and I ought to be worshiping. The psalmist introduces us to him, to, introduces him to us as the Lord, the Lord our God. Seven times, or seven times the psalmist uses this phrase, the Lord, or the Lord our God. He is the one, the psalmist says, is the one that you and I are called to worship. He's a holy and infinite God. Three times the psalmist concludes with this refrain that he is holy. Verses 3, 5, and 9. Holy here as the idea he is totally set apart. Infinitely different than us. Completely other than who we are. He is the one who, is, who exists in and of himself. He is the one who has created everything. He is the uncreated being. He is holy. And we're called to worship him. This is the one you and I are called to worship. This thrice holy God, as Isaiah says. He is worthy of our worship for he is both holy, he is infinite, he is the king of kings who is, who is far above everything that we are, but yet he is the one that we can approach to, we can come to and bow down and be known by. And so the psalmist commands us to worship him because he reigns. He sovereignly reigns as the king of kings. He commands us to worship him because he is the judge, the righteous judge, the one who, who, who will examine our lives. And we are called to worship him because he is the one who faithfully cares for his people. And so, friends, our theme this morning is the Lord our God is holy. Therefore, worship him. For he sovereignly reigns, he righteously rules, and he graciously responds. The psalmist begins with the Lord. The Lord. You'll note that every reference to the Lord in this psalm is in, the all, is in all capital letters. This is the covenant name of our God, Yahweh. This is the first word that spills off the the pen of the psalmist as he's writing this psalm. This is where the psalmist begins with, with the Lord. 
And friend, the question that we have to ask ourselves, and you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, is where do we begin? Do we begin with the Lord God of the heavens and the earth? Or do we begin somewhere else? Each day, every new project, every new major decision in our life, where do we begin? Is it with the Lord? The Lord. This name appears seven times in this short psalm of nine verses. Seven times the psalmist calls on the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, the God who makes covenant with, with the people who don't deserve relationship, and he comes and makes covenant with a people like us. And he continues to make covenant even when we fail time and, and time again. But note that the psalmist, four times in reference to the use of the word Lord, he uses the phrase, the Lord our God. The psalmist acknowledges that this God, the, the great, holy, infinite God, is his God. The Lord our God. And not just his God, he, he uses the plural there, our. He is the God of his people, his covenant people. And therefore, worship is not just an individual thing. Worship is a community, a corporate aspect. There's a corporate aspect to our worship. And so this morning, we gather to worship the Lord, our God. And the psalmist desires his audience, no, the Lord desires us to read this psalm, to consider him, to consider his holiness, and then to worship. The psalm is divided into three stanzas. Verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 5, and then 6 through the end of the the psalm. And each stanza concludes with this refrain, The Lord our God is holy. There's a declaration of the holiness of the Lord, of his name in verse 3, of himself in verses 5 and 9. And each of these declarations of holiness is preceded by a command to praise or to worship, to exalt, to lift up the name of the Lord. An element of worship that also involves bowing down, humbling ourselves before him. And that alone, friends, should be enough for us to bow down and worship the Lord our God. The fact that he commands us to do it. But the Lord in his gracious kindness and mercy gives three reasons why we ought to bow down and worship him. The first is because he is sovereign. He is the sovereign king. The Lord reigns, the psalmist says. The Lord reigns. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He rules over all of this vast world, this universe. He is subject to no one. All things, all people, all of us here this morning are subject to him. Regardless of whether you recognize it or not, regardless of whether you want to acknowledge him as the King of kings, He is the King of kings, and his reign is sovereign. But it's a reign that is characterized 
by the fact that he is a king that sits on a throne, a throne that's approachable, but also a throne that is high and lifted up, a glorious throne. And we see this in our text, the fact that it's an approachable throne in the, in the first verse. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits between the cherubims. Children, do you know who the cherubims were? In order to understand this phrase, he sits between the cherubims, we need to first understand what the cherubims were, who they were, what they were involved in. They're a class of angels that are always associated in the scriptures with the holiness of the Lord. They are always found attending to and guarding the Lord's holiness, as it were, the way of approach to the Lord. They are called to do the Lord's bidding, protecting, preserving the way of approach back to the Lord. In the scriptures, we find reference to the cherubims in in a number of places, but I'd like to highlight two, the first two, actually. The first time we read reference to the cherubims is in Genesis 3, verse 24. There we see them being placed by the Lord to keep the way of the tree of life. Children, you remember that instance in the scriptures where the Lord had just created the heavens and the earth in six days. He had rested the seventh. He had placed man in the garden to care for the garden, to take care of it. But he had given them one condition. You may not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we know, in short order, Adam and Eve fell. They fell. They sinned against the Lord. They ate of that one tree that the Lord had not allowed them to eat. And for that, the Lord came to them and cast them out of the garden. As he cast them out of the garden, he placed in front of the tree of life, which was another tree in the garden, he placed in front of it, protecting it, the cherubims. The way back to God through our own works was gone. The tree of life, access to it, forbidden, prevented by these angels. An unholy sinner, like us, could never come into God's presence on our own because we are tainted with sin, we're filled with sin. And unless there's a mediator, that way could never be opened. And it would have been right, friends, for scriptures to end here, for we had forfeited every right back to the Lord. But the Lord in his mercy provides another instance where these cherubims are found. And the second instance where we find reference to the cherubims is in Exodus chapter 25, verse 18 and following. Here we find them watching over the mercy seat. The instructions, this particular passage, we have the instructions for the tabernacle or part of the instructions for the tabernacle particularly the holy of holies and in the holy of holies we have the ark of the covenant and in the ark of the covenant we had the law and over top of the ark of the covenant we had this the mercy seat 
and over top of the, the mercy seat, we had these two cherubims that were molded with gold, looking down constantly, perpetually at that mercy seat. As it were, visualizing, typifying the way back to, there was a way back to the Lord, but it was being guarded, it was being protected. And we see that taking place with the fact that the high priest could only come in once a year with blood into that presence, into the Holy of Holies, and not be consumed. And we're told that the Lord sits between the cherubims. He reigns from between the cherubims. He reigns from this mercy seat. The cherubim's presence over the mercy seat was constant. It was perpetual. They never left. Their faces never moved from off of it. And it speaks to the ever-watchful eyes of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who reigns consistently, perpetually, never changing. The throne of our God is constant. It cannot and it will not fail. But from between the cherubims, from between these cherubims, we also, we have a hint at a way of access. For you know that once a year the high priest could enter. The goat was slain, blood was taken, and the high priest would would remove all his ornate garments and enter with that blood once a year and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. There was a way of access back into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, but it could only be through blood. It could only be through the, the blood that pointed to the blood of Christ. There was a way of approach back for sinners into the presence of this holy, triune, majestic king. And friends, we know that this way that was pointed via the high priest once a year pointed to our Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest. And so the apostle who wrote the book of Hebrews said he entered, Christ entered once for all into into the Holy of Holies with one sacrifice that was enough never to be done again. Friend, this way of access is opened up through Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King of Kings. The fact that he went to the cross, that he suffered and died, there is access for sinners like you and I to come into God's presence once more to worship him and not be consumed in his presence. Friend, our Lord reigns. Jesus Christ reigns from his Father's right hand. And as the church, that ought to give us immense confidence and comfort that we have a God who reigns on our behalf, who sits and knows all that's going on in this world, even in the seeming disarray of the world, the seeming thriving of the dark the of evil and darkness in in this country and in the world as a whole 
as we look around society, as we seem to see it spiraling out of control, we need to look up and remember that we have a king who reigns forever. And he will never let his throne be usurped. His reign impacts not just the world around us, but it impacts us as well. Whether you know him or not, whether you have approached him in the blood of Christ or not, we are called to tremble, to bow down, to worship. That's the psalmist's command. Let the earth be moved. He is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name. No one is exempt from the call to worship this king. It encompasses all of one's life. It involves trembling. It involves the emotions. It involves bowing down. It involves all aspects of our life. Not just on Sunday, but seven days a week, 24-7, we are called to worship the Lord our God. And friend, you will bow down. There will be a day, for those of you who have never bowed down to King Jesus, there will be a day where you will bend your knees and worship him. Not as Lord and Savior, but as just the just just judge. Oh friend, come into his presence now through Jesus Christ. But not only is our Lord reigned from a throne of mercy, but he also reigns from a throne that is high and exalted. In verse 2 we read that the Lord is great in Zion. Zion is a term that is re, is references the place of David's reign in Jerusalem. It is a reference to the throne of the king that God had established in Israel. And the Lord, we know, had promised David that his throne would be established forever. The throne of David in Christ Jesus would be forever. It would be a throne that is high and lifted up. And when Christ ascended on high, he now sits at his Father's right hand, as Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, that he sits on high, reigning at his Father's right hand. And friends, Christ's reign is supreme. It encompasses every tribe and nation, every time period in earth, of the history of the earth, And we look forward to that day when we will gather around the throne as John describes in Revelations 5 where there will be tens of thousands, thousands upon thousands of people gathered around the throne crying, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory and blessing. Friend, do you look forward to that day? To gather around the throne of the Lamb with people from every tribe and nation, from every tongue, to worship this King of kings and Lord of lords. Or do you It has no impact on you. You have no desire to look forward to that day. 
Well, friend, then you need to bend your knees, confess your sins, pour out your heart to this king. For he is not only the king of kings, he is also the just judge who will examine your life, which we hope to consider in our second thought. Our Lord is not only worthy of our worship because he is the king of kings, but he is worthy of our worship because he is the one who judges righteously. He is the holy, just judge who does everything right and well. And as we consider this from the second stanza of this psalm in verses 4 through 5, we want to particularly look at verse 4. And there's three verbs in verse 4. He loves, the king loves judgment. The king establishes equity. And the king executes his judgment and righteousness. The king loves judgment. This one who reigns supreme loves justice. As the king, he has given laws, laws that reflect his very being, his very character, laws that tell us how to live in light of who he is. The Lord loves his law because it is a reflection of himself. He delights in it. He delights in that which is good and upright. So what does it mean for us? Well, Micah 6, verse 6 through 8, helps us here. Micah asks this question to the people that he was writing his prophecy to. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with tens thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Will my religious exercises be enough? And Micah goes on to demonstrate that no. The Lord requires, this is what the Lord requires of his people. He says, the Lord loves to see his people do justly, to love mercy. To walk humbly before their God. And why does the Lord delight in this? Not just the mere outward fulfilling of the law. Well, because this is what the Lord himself loves. He loves when his people do justly because he loves to do, show justice. He loves when his people show mercy because he is a God of mercy. He loves it when his people walk humbly before him because he himself is is the just, merciful Lord who has humbled himself as he came into this world as the suffering servant. Friend, in loving the Lord and loving what the Lord loves, we worship him. So do you love the Lord? Do you love to do justly? Do you love to show mercy? Do you love to walk humbly before the Lord? Because the Lord himself loves justice. My friend, he doesn't only love justice, but he establishes equity. Verse 4 says, thou dost establish equity. 
The idea here is the Lord himself has brought into the state of existence or he has set the goals for how we ought to live in his sight. The psalmist here declares that equity has been established by the Lord. And equity here has the idea of something that is even or smooth level. It is, it is a, an idea, a word that's used in other parts of the scripture in terms of a, a, a form of measurement. I'm sure some of you work in the construction industry and you have various, particularly if you get into the building industry and you're building homes, barns, you go out to the job site, you have a plan that you work off of to build the particular structure that you are called to, to erect. And there's details there. You have to follow the instructions. You pull out your tape measure to measure Cut, boards to length, install. You put in the windows and the doors. You set up the wall. And you just can't just put it in and leave it as it is. Oh, that looks good. No. There's a standard by which you're expected to set it up and to install it. So we expect to see windows and doors that are level, that are 90 degrees to the floor. And so we pull out our measurement tools, our levels, our squares, our tape measures. We have a standard by which we will set up and erect that building. For something to be just, to be equitable, there must be a standard that has been established that will be used as the criteria for right or wrong. And friend, the Lord has established what that criteria will be for our lives. Do our lives measure up to his standard? He is the ultimate standard by which you and I are to live day by day. And friend, our lives will be held up against his just standards, his holy standards. And our Lord is not capricious. He doesn't change. His standards are firm and sure. And so as we hold up our lives, as we examine our lives in light of who the Lord is and his standards for our lives, we must confess that we fall short, that we don't live up to his standards, that we sin and we've, we've sinned away our right to have access back. We must acknowledge that none of us in and of ourselves are going to escape for not one of our sins can be passed over. Friend, even the Lord Jesus Christ, as he came and lived here on this earth, as he bore the sins of his people, could not forego God's just standards against his people's sins. And he too went the way of the cross. The Lord's justice, as the third verb says, must be executed. But it's because Christ went to the cross that there is, a, there is hope for sinners like us. The Lord loves justice. He has established equity. He executes judgment and righteousness in Jacob. 
The focus is in this last verb is on the fact that the Lord, Yahweh, has executed his justice and righteousness. This, this word tra- could be translated, thou hast done it or completed it. Our holy Lord God, the one who cannot and will not overlook sin, is the one who has executed his justice and judgment. He has completed judgment. His justice has been satisfied. And the verse adds this qualification. Thou executest judgment and righteousness in Jacob. Literally, the text reads, if we were to translate it word for word in the order of the original languages, justice and righteousness in Jacob you have done. In Jacob, in the seed of Jacob, in Christ Jesus, the Holy Lord God has executed his justice and equity. So, so instead of overlooking sin so that sinners can come back into his presence, he has sent his beloved son to the cross. In Jacob, in Jesus Christ, he has executed, he has done, he has completed his justice. And friend, isn't this what Jesus himself cried as he, as he hung on the cross, as he, the moment before he gave up his life, he cried, it is finished. It is in Christ, in his suffering and his death, that we have the full expression of God's love for justice, his establishment of equity and his executing of judgment and righteousness. Dear child of God, does this not cause your heart to rejoice that there is a king who has executed justice in his only beloved son so that you and I can go to him time and time again? And friend, it is only because of who Jesus is and because of his finished work that he could be called our God. It's in response to this righteous rule that the psalmist says, Exalt ye the Lord our God. This is the first time in the psalm that we get that personal pronoun, our. Prior to this, it's just the Lord reigns. The Lord is great in Zion. The king's strength loves judgment, justice. But now, in the fact that his justice has been executed in Jacob, he is the Lord, our God. It's only in Christ Jesus that we can now have a personal relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, friend, I have the question for you, for myself. Do you know him as the Lord? Have you exalted his name? And is this a pattern for your life? Have you worshipped him in humble adoration, bowing down before him? We have seen that the Lord is not only holy and reigns and rules with effectiveness and power, that he is the just judge who judges righteously. But we also see him from our last stanza in this psalm that he is, <clears throat> he is a God who graciously cares for his people. He doesn't just, he just doesn't save them and leave them on their own. No, he cares for them. He answers their requests. He responds to them with his word. And he graciously 
deals with our sins. He answers. The Lord our God answers. Two times the psalmist highlights this fact in verses 6 and 8. The psalmist points to these times when the people of God of Old Testament Israel had turned to, turned to him with their questions for help. And particularly the psalmist highlights three Old Testament leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, who had called upon the Lord and how he answered them. It wasn't that he eventually answered them or that he might answer them, but he answered them. There were no conditions given. I'll I'll answer if you do this. No, he answered them. No stipulations. Straightforward. He answered them. The answer had nothing to do with who the people were because we know Moses and Samuel and Aaron. They were mere men, sinners. The answer had everything to do with who was answering had everything to do with the God who heard their cries. And in the second use of this verb in verse 8, where we, where we read, Thou answered them, O Lord our God. It's as, if, it's as if the psalmist is saying, O Lord our God, you answered them. Will you not answer our requests? Lord, you have done this for your people of old. Will you not hear our requests today? And friend, if you love the Lord and you know his saving work, you've trusted in him and you love him, you can go to him with every care and need. And dear sinner, if you've never trusted in Jesus, you can go to him with your sins and pour them out before him, knowing that he is a God who hears and delights to answer prayer. So in our need for forgiveness of sins, we can go to him. In our struggle with putting off sin in our lives, we can go to him for help. In times of depression or anxiety, we can go to him. In times of loneliness or in the loss of a loved one, we can go to him for help and comfort. In our relationship struggles, in our families, in our marriages, with our children, we can go to him for help. For the church, as you, as you rejo- rejoice in the coming of Pastor Overdyne in your midst, he's going to need your prayers, and you can go to him and lift him up in your prayers. For the nation, for this province, for your local towns, you can go to him the one who hears and answers prayer. In every situation, in every care, go to him, turn to him, call upon his name. Isn't this what Peter says? Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. But maybe, maybe someone's asking a question. <clears throat> How does the Lord care for his people? How does he hear their cries and answer them? Well, verse 7 tells us that he spoke to them. He spoke to them. He gives, him, he gives them the word, his word. And when the Lord answers his people, his revelation to them, friend, is never, it's never ambiguous, it's never uncertain, but it's always clear 
Oh yes, at times as we open the Word, as He speaks to us through His Word, there are times where we read various chapters or parts of the Scriptures that seem to be hard to understand. But yet the Word is, not, is clear. And it's our own inability to get in and dig through that, the Word. The psalmist uses two words to describe this word that the Lord has spoken to his people. In verse 7, he uses the word testimonies and ordinance. The word for testimonies is a word that's primarily found in the psalms themselves. Over half of these instances of this particular word are found in Psalm 119. And I'm sure you know that Psalm 119 is a, is a psalm all about the word of the Lord. And this word for testimony has the idea of, of a witness account or a witness report of a particular event. And the Lord is saying, my word to you is my witness report of myself, of all the things that I've done His witness report of his doings, of his doings as the triune covenant keeping Lord. The Lord gives us his own witness report, his own witness statement. And he desires us to trust him, to take him at his word in every time, every situation. He desires us to trust him this year beginning of this new season, as for you as a flock, as you receive your new pastor. He calls us to rely on his faithful care, recognizing that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Have you read his witness report of himself, of his own doings, of his constant faithfulness? The second word that the psalmist uses is ordinance. This is something that is prescribed or owed. The Lord not only gives us a faithful account of who he is and what he has done, but he also calls his people to live in a way that pleases him. And it is the very word of God that's going to teach us how to respond, how to live out the Christian life in light of who he is. The word teaches us to think and to live. Friend, have we recognized that the word of God is his own witness statement of who he is and what he's done? But have you also seen it as the call to live for him? Friend, if we're going to live for him in a way that pleases him, whether in our worships, formal worship settings like today or tomorrow as you go out into the workforce, as you interact with people who maybe do not know the Lord, how do you live for him? Well, we need to be in the word. We need to be studying this witness report. We need to be examining it. And we need to take note that he has never once failed his people. And he will continue to remain faithful to his people throughout the ages. And he calls us to live for him in his prescribed way. Including in our worship. Exalting him, worshiping him, bowing down before him. 
The Lord's answer to us through His Word, and as His Word will testify to this fact, never is done in a way that overlooks our sin, or as it were, sweeps our sin under the rug so that they can just be hid or lived in secretly. No, He will deal justly with sin. The infinite holy God, the one who reigns, deals with sin. This is what the psalmist says in verse 8, Thou answered them, O Lord our God. It was the God that forgavest them. He forgives the sins of his people. And this word forgive has the idea of carrying up or raising up. The Lord, as he forgives his people, lifts his people up from their sins, from the burden of it, the misery of it, the, the guilt of it so that it has no power over them. Oh yes, we still struggle with sin. We still feel the burden of sin. We still maybe have the temptations to fall into sin. The Lord forgives, and we can go to him over and over and over again with our sins, with the temptations to sin, because he is the God that forgave us them. But the Lord not only deals with the sin and forgiving it, but he also takes vengeance on their sins. He punishes sin. There are consequences for sin. Maybe they aren't, we don't see them carried out in daily life all the time. And maybe they are there, the consequences are there daily, reminding us of our sin constantly. Children, maybe you've had, times where you've been disobedient with your mom to your mom or to your dad and which is sin disobedience and maybe you you've confessed it to them you repented of it to them you ask for forgiveness and your mom or dad they forgive you the relationship is restored and maybe at that time there's no punishment You're allowed to go free, and there's no consequences. And and there are times in the Christian's life where we sin and we confess it, and there are no apparent immediate consequences. But there are also times where, as parents, when our children come to us and confess their sins to us, we, we have to say, we forgive you. But there is going to be consequences. Maybe it's a loss of privileges. Maybe it's a spanking. Maybe it's, maybe it's a time away from certain devices. You, you name it. There's consequences. Or maybe it's the sin has hurt someone, injured someone. And so there's broader consequences to those around us. And dear child of God, isn't it true with our sins? Sometimes our sins cause ripple effects around us, in our marriages, in our families, in society. Consequences that we cannot ignore. But the, the Lord forgives, but the consequences remain. The Lord in his mercy cannot overlook sin. And sometimes we deal with the painful consequences in our lives. But these consequences, this vengeance of the Lord 
are meant to draw us closer to him. They're to remind us of who he is and his call to honor our lives. They're meant to lead us to repentance, to put off other sins in our lives. It calls broader to, than just us as well. As we see the consequences in others' lives of their sins, it's a call for each of us individually to examine our own lives and to repent of sin and to confess it. To live in the reality that the Lord exists. That he reigns supreme. That he righteously rules. That he graciously answers his people. This one, the Lord, the holy triune God, is worthy of our exaltation. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our reverence and submission today, tomorrow, the rest of our lives. Friend, we, we begin our service with a question that each of us must answer. Who do you worship? Is it the Lord, the King of kings, the sovereign, righteous judge, the one who graciously cares for his people? Or are you still worshiping something or someone else? He is an approachable king. He desires when sinners come to him. And confess him. Study his word and see that for yourself, his own witness report. Come and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, for he is worthy. Amen. Lord, we are thankful that thou dost reign that thou art the sovereign, just king who who reigns with power and might, who is the righteous judge, who does all things well. We're thankful, Lord, that thou art the one who does graciously care for thy people, giving us thy faithful word, which is a faithful witness report of all that thou hast done for sinners like us in times past. And so we too, Lord, can come and take thee at thy word, for thou dost never change. Oh, forgive our sins. Wash them in the blood of Jesus. Help us to live wholly and solely for thee. And may our lives be lived out of glory in worship and praise and exaltation of the King of kings. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now sing from Psalter.